Hello, my friend. It's episode 402 of the Keto Diet Podcast. My name is Leanne Vogel. I'm so excited to have you here. If you want to catch up with me past this episode, head on over to healthfulpursuit.com where you can find um, articles and resources and guides and so, so, so much more over there. Today, we're talking about DNA, and this is something that I go back and forth on. I am not convinced that getting a genetic report is the be-all, end-all of your health. I'm pretty convinced of this. But what I love about hosting a podcast is understanding that there are so many different types of people that listen to the show. And by having a simple resource or even just a conversation about this resource, you can make a better informed decision about what you need and the answers that might be missing in your own health. Now, we had a conversation about uh, genetics, just like a basic conversation. I prepared an episode, episode 319, where I just shared my understanding of what DNA is all about and what these genetic reports can tell us. Then further along, episode 368, um, we had a guest on to chat with us about nutrigenomics, basically the idea that nutrition and the choices we make with our food can change how our DNA expresses itself. And I would definitely see that in my own life. You know, I've shared this in our My Personal Health Journey series, which I started in 2022, all about the journey that I'd been through from having an eating disorder to discovering keto to having to go off keto because of uh, chronic illnesses and then going back on keto uh, and preparing an episode here that'll go live in a couple of weeks on my experience with H. pylori. spoiler alert, it wasn't fun. So I do, I have seen in my personal life that nutrition changes can alter the course of your life. Like I see that in my practice. I see that, that with my clients all the time, but is DNA reporting, is genetic reporting the only way to move about this? No, just like I don't feel like blood work is the only way, just like I feel like a GI map, which is a stool test, is the only way. There are so many different data points in addition to your own experience with your body. And so that's why I love to have conversations with people that I might not agree with 100%. Our guest today was very open to my skepticism. I told his team before we booked the episode that... Uh, I don't know how I feel about this. I'm not sure, but okay. So our guest today is Mike Mallon. He's a the co-founder and chief science officer behind wildhealth.com. And basically what wildhealth.com does, and I'm not paid to say this whatsoever. I'm just laying the groundwork so you can make the decision of whether or not something like this would be beneficial or just understanding that there's something like this out there. So my understanding is what they do is they personalize a program for you using genetics, blood work, diet, nutrition, exercise, and recovery. What kind of blood work they run? I have no idea. I asked multiple times just like what that looks like and I didn't get a clear answer. So I don't know what that looks like. I know that once you have your report, you get a visit with a physician about what your report is saying. A hang-up that I had, and I did bring it up in the interview, and I'll just highlight it up here up front, is that they do use thorn products in uh, their recommendations, and I have a pretty huge issue with thorn. Uh, Last year, thorn, as a supplement company, decided to lay off. I don't even know if they laid off or fired. I'm not sure. You can look it up. Um, They're employees who chose not to get vaccinated. And so as a practitioner, I removed Thorn from my platform and just didn't want to associate with them. So that was kind of a sticking point. And so, you know, I've, I've recorded this intro probably 20 times to make sure that I stay as honest and non- emotional as possible to just provide data. And that's something that I truly stand behind. In fact, I was having a conversation with my husband a couple months ago. We had watched the news, which, blah, I never watch the news. It's terrible. So when I was a kid, I was probably, I don't know, 12 or so. Um, what my social studies teacher had a cousin that worked for the local news station. And so she had her cousin come in and teach us how to be news anchors. Like she taught us so much about how to chase a story and how to come up with honest articles and share opinion and just all these things and data points. And it was, it was, it was such a pivotal memory. And I remember thinking like, this is what I want to do. I want to highlight facts so that people can make decisions. Okay. And, and really highlight where my opinion is my opinion and where there's facts behind it. And so I really think in some of these episodes and what I'm sharing here, 
whether it's on the blog or the podcast or YouTube or on my Instagram, it's really to just provide the facts. Now, as a practitioner, I have to understand that my personal health experience is not to necessarily be used to see other people's health experience. Do I feel like personally, if I had a genetic report that went through the analysis of my DNA to create a personalized health plan that was like somehow I would be healthier, I would have more data points. I don't think so. I've seen for myself personally that blood work and functional testing like stool testing, urine hormone testing, uh, hair tissue mineral analysis to be far more in-depth and supportive of what's going on in my body right now. Now that might not be you, okay? So I fully understand that my job as a clinician, as a practitioner in this space is to provide the data and to facilitate understanding around that data so that you can make the decisions for yourself, okay? Would I suggest Wild Health for one of my clients? Probably not because we kind of like do a lot of this stuff one-on-one. And though I do have clients that have genetic reports, Oftentimes, I haven't seen that correlate directly with what they're experiencing in the moment, okay? I find genetic reports in my practice and in my opinion, I found them to be super helpful when we have no other place to go and we've kind of like taken care of everything and things are pretty good and we're like, okay, how do we just think about the future and what kind of plan do we need to put together to start thinking about where your body could move next, Okay, so that's kind of how I use it in my practice. But again, you might hear today's episode and be like, yes, this is what I want. This makes so much sense. This is what I've been looking for. And that's my goal. Okay, so without further ado, let's talk about who's coming on the show today. Dr. Mike Mallon has been in the medical practice for 10 years, but obsessed with health, physical performance, and longevity his entire life. He currently practices in Bend, Oregon, where he lives with his wife and two children. Mike is born board certified in emergency medicine and completed a fellowship in point of care ultrasound. During his fellowship, he specialized in cardiac ultrasound and passed the national board of echocardiography exam. Dr. Mallon has taught tens of thousands of physicians on the topics of point of care ultrasound, ultrasound guided procedures and injections, and cardiac ultrasound. He is a co-creator of ultrasound podcast and ultrasound education tool for physicians, as well as the ultrasound leadership Academy, a nonprofit ultrasound education company that has taught ultrasound all over the globe. Mike is an avid athlete who loves self-hacking and optimizing fitness, diet, sleep, and supplementation. He has participated in countless adventure races, ultra marathons, cycling races, and even CrossFit competitions. Mike's current obsession is the science of longevity, helping people live as long as they can with the highest quality of life attainable. Again, when you listen to today's episode, if you want to check out Wild Health, it's wildhealth.com slash keto diet. And that's code keto diet two zero, all one word to get 20% off wild health services. Okay, so some of the topics that we cover is kind of diet and how do we figure it out, how the genome is involved in all of this, blood work combined with genetics and understanding fat, protein, and carb intake, the patterns of disease in your DNA, how genetics affect our future care, understanding MTHFR. (laughs) I have a huge issue with MTHFR. Like, so many issues. So just because you have MTHFR doesn't mean that you need B12. (laughs) Spoiler, totally. Epigenetics and blood work to understanding what you're needing now. Okay, so let's just dive into it. I hope you enjoy today's interview. Hey, I'm Leanne Vogel. You're listening to the Keto Diet Podcast. I've created a free guide with tips on how to start keto and maintain your fat-fueled life. Grab it at healthfulpursuit.com slash free as a little thank you for listening to the show. Hey, Mike, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Oh, of course, of course. And I just shared your official bio, but why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got into this from your background to now where you are today? Yeah, sure. Um, 
Yeah, it's been a bit of a journey, I guess. I started off in traditional medicine, uh, practicing emergency medicine, actually. And, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a great fit for me. I, I mean, I enjoyed it, but I, I didn't enjoy seeing people at sort of the end stage of their disease on a regular basis and realizing that, you know, there was so much opportunity that was missed to help prevent that disease process. So that's really what first got me excited about the idea of preventative medicine just in general, as opposed to, you know, reactive medicine, which is obviously what I was practicing in the emergency department. And then, you know, it was more of a I guess a personal journey that kind of got me really excited about genetics-based personalized medicine, right? And that was sort of this personal journey of realizing that I had, you know, bad lipids and inflammation and all of these, all these issues that, you know, I was trying to fix through diet. And it was just this, this constant, you know, (laughs) trial and error uh, to try to fix it through diet. And some of the diets that should have worked for me didn't work for me. And, you know, it took a long time to really realize that, you know, what, what the right diet was for me. And in doing that around about the same time, I was also messing around with some of the consumer genetics programs and looking at things like 23andMe and Ancestry and then taking that those raw files and putting them into some of these other programs that people have created that look at more specific SNPs for diet and stuff like that. And I realized that if I had had this data before I started down this journey of just trying diet after diet and not having success and failing, then I would have had much better idea of what was actually going to work for me. So that was really like the, the aha moment where you know, I and my, my partner realized that it was, you know, it was time to try to do this on a, on a larger scale and then started basically doing that for friends and family. And, you know, next thing you know, you're opening a clinic uh, and, and not doing emergency medicine anymore. So it was a, it was a, a wild, a wild journey, but, but one that I'm really glad we undertook. Completely. And there's so many pieces that I want to unpack with everything that you just shared. I will say that I've done a lot of genetic stuff myself. You know, we've had some people on the show to chat about DNA and all the things. And the more I get into it, the more a little bit skeptical I am. So I'm really excited to have this conversation with you to kind of go through maybe some of the ways that I'm not looking at it correctly and just trying to figure out the DNA portion of things and the SNPs and what they mean and what that can tell us. I'm just, I'm really excited for this conversation. What I wanted to uh, go into a little bit, something that you just mentioned is figuring out the diet. What have you, like, how did you eat originally and how has that changed through doing testing and how has that benefited you throughout? I've eaten, I've eaten a lot of different ways. <laughs> I've been everything from uh, from keto to to vegan, and every everything in between. High protein, low protein, you know, fasting, intermittent fasting, not. And it was, you know, for me, it was it was definitely a journey, but it was more of a journey informed by labs rather than than genetics initially, right? So it was, you know, let's try this diet, and then you know, three months later, go see my doc and get my labs done and and see see how things look. Then if they look bad, then I just wasted three months on a diet that wasn't a good fit for me, you know? So that was super frustrating. And the fact that I couldn't just like talk to my doc and like basically get in labs every couple of weeks and that way just change something, come back, retest. So uh, I guess it, more specifically with your question, what diets have I, have I unsuccessfully done? Um, I have unsuccessfully done a high satur- saturated fat version of the ketogenic diet. I am one of those people that uh, gets really high levels of inflammation and extremely high lipids with that. And I do see this on a, on a moderate basis with a, a lot of my patients who just don't tolerate high, sat, high saturated fat levels in their diet. You know, these are people who are eating like really high levels of cheese and, um, you know, lots of, lots of really fatty red meat to meet their, their ketogenic uh, macros. And some people it just doesn't fit very well with. And I was, I was one of those people. Um, when I went back and looked at my DNA, there's, you know, some specific SNPs that really stood out that I think increased my risk and other people's risk for that same sort of response to that diet. And that's not to say that a diet doesn't work with some people. You know, what's interesting is it works really well for my co-founder. And that's a, that's a big part of how we got so excited about this is the fact that he and I are very, very similar in a lot of ways, both very active, very, you know, nutrition conscious. The difference was, you know, when, you know, I had more of this lipid issue and when I ate this way and when he ate this way, his labs looked great and mine looked terrible and I felt terrible. And that was really interesting to us that there was this just this 
obvious difference between the two of us just based on, you know, a couple of genetic factors. Yeah, completely. Would that be the APOE gene specifically? I know I see that a lot in my practice of people that just can't handle saturated fat in large quantities or at all. That's one of them. Yeah. So I'm, I've got an APOE 3-4. So I've got one four, not two fours. But there's a few other two. There's uh, PPAR gamma and PPAR alpha are pretty active in terms of fat utilization in general and also play a big role, especially PPAR alpha in um, saturated fat metabolism. There's also some others that seem to be related like FTO. There's a, about, I would say about 15 that we look at pretty closely specifically regarded to saturated fat metabolism and your ability to use it and not cause inflammation and increase triglycerides and cause lipid abnormalities. Whether you're keto, low-carb, paleo, or somewhere in between, electrolytes facilitate hundreds of functions in the body, including the conduction of nerve impulses, hormonal regulation, nutrient absorption, and fluid balance. This is amplified on the ketogenic diet, but every human requires this balance. When you have adrenal hypo or hyperfunction, this affects your body's ability to balance sodium and potassium. Do you get headaches behind your left eye? This is a good sign that you need sodium. Headaches behind your right eye? This is a good sign you need potassium. Nearly every one of my clients that I work one-on-one -on -one with have an imbalance of electrolytes when they first come to see me. Symptoms such as headaches, muscle cramps, fatigue, sleeplessness, or seen right there in their blood work. Much of this is improved with proper electrolyte supplementation. Now, I personally consume at least one packet of electrolytes daily, and not just any electrolyte, element electrolytes, because it doesn't have sugar, fillers, coloring, artificial, gunk, and has the effective electrolyte ratio that so many other guys don't do right with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium, that perfect combination. Right now, Element is offering my listeners a free sample pack with any order. That's eight single serving packets free with any element order. This is a great way to try all eight flavors or share element with a salty friend. Get yours at drinklmnt.com slash KDP. This deal is only available through my link. You must go to D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com slash kdp element offers a no questions asked refund so you can try it totally risk free if you don't like it share it with a friend and they will give you your money back no questions asked you really have nothing to lose i just love these guys again it's drinklmnt.com slash kdp Cool. Awesome. And we're going to get into what all that means in a moment. You also touched a little bit on blood work and the fact that you are changing up your diet. I've done personally the same thing until I learned functional blood chemistry. And I was like, how did I not know about this before? Because I would change my diet, wait three months, go into my regular doctor, then it would be a mess. And I'd be like, okay, back to the drawing board. Now, do you see blood work playing a role in understanding how your body's responding to diet now? Have you seen more of a functional approach to blood work being beneficial in understanding how the body accepts food? Like, for example, if bilirubin is low or sometimes if it's high, we can determine whether or not the gallbladder is functioning well or if bun and creatinine are low, we could have low protein. Do you see that in your practice in conjunction with genetic stuff too? Yeah, definitely. A hundred percent. Genetics by themselves are pretty useless. I mean, you can kind of get like a vector of direction of where, where the patient should be going or where you should be going if you have your genetic information. But it, you know, it's really challenging. A lot of the reports out there are still focusing on single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs, which just means one, one tiny piece of the DNA. Whereas, you know, a lot of the people who are doing this on a larger scale and actually doing it well are using polygenomic risk scores, meaning they look at multiple SNPs, sometimes thousands that all have a small effect on the same, you know, disease process. So as opposed to looking at one and saying, aha, you have that one SNP, you obviously are not going to do well with saturated fat. That's sort of ridiculous. What if you've got 15 SNPs that show the, uh, the opposite, right? So trying to look at the genome as a, on a broader scale, looking at all the different SNPs that can be involved as opposed to single nucleotide polymorphisms is important, but then also understanding the patient's phenotype. And that means how are they currently, what does their body composition look like now, right? So the genotype is kind of like your 
You, you know, that's your, that's like the blueprints. You know, this is how Mike should have been built, right? But in reality, the environment impacts that. And there's something called epigenetics, which turn genes on and off in your cells. And the way your environment changes your epigenetics, actually, that's what produces what Mike actually looks like, not straight from the blueprint. So although we all have this blueprint of ourselves, where none of us are built truly to that blueprint. We're built based on how our environment has molded us over the years. So understanding labs and understanding how, you know, how have, has our blueprint manifested into this person in front of us is extremely important and a huge part of what we, what we do at Wild Health. So we're combining the DNA and the labs together along with sort of, you know, a, a conversation with the patient that gets really detailed into minutia about how you live your life to better understand that phenotype of the person in front of us. Okay. It's sort of like if you're building a house or in my case, a boat, you know, you go with the blueprints and you think it's going to be a certain way, but by the time you're done, things don't always match up. Is that a fair analogy? Totally. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you do things throughout your life. I mean, your epigenetics come from your parents. They come from your childhood. So, you know, if you're, if you're, for example, if your mother had a, a very poor diet when you were in utero, and then for the first 15 years of your life, you ate, you know, pizza and Ben and Jerry's, that's a very different person independent of their genetics from a person who, you know, had a healthy and uh, utero experience and a healthy diet the first 15 years of their life. Genes are now turned on and turned off based on how you've affected your, been affected by your environment. So it sounds like one of the issues I've had with these sorts of conversations in the past is that we're just looking at one thing and we're relating it to that one report and we're saying, okay, now this person needs X, Y, Z. And I always struggle with looking at, I mean, we've all done it. We've gone to our doctors. We've said that there's something wrong. They do blood work. They say all your labs are normal and they set you on your way. And you're like, well, wait a minute, I'm, I'm not normal. And so what I've found a lot in this environment is, you know, you look at a certain, I think you're calling it SNPs, and then you say, okay, well, this means this, therefore do this. And it just feels very one-sided and, and very excited, I guess. So it sounds like what you're saying is more looking at the patterns of things, of multiple things that are culminating to give us a story of what's happening in the body. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Yeah. There's, you know, there's very few diseases that are actually caused by a single change in your DNA. Most diseases just have increased risk based on lots of different changes in your DNA, right? So there's some things you can be born with that are called these, you know, sort of genetic diseases. They're deterministic, meaning that if this one particular change happens in your DNA, you definitely are going to have this disease. That's not what we're talking about. That's not the genetics that we're using. The genetics that we're using is you've got this, you know, you've got this change here and another change, and another change, and maybe you've got, you know, 1700 different changes and every single one of those slightly alters your risk of having some disease process, whether that's high cholesterol or, you know, being obese or dementia right? All of those things are going to have a small impact. So looking at them broadly, all of those things, as well as, you know, what are you right now? You know, do you have high lipids? Do, you know, is there evidence of cognitive decline? Is there obesity? All those things are, are important and need to be taken into account. So it's really more of like a, a big data approach to healthcare that still uses the, you know, the, the, the patient's desires and wills to think about how we're going to approach the problem in front of us. Cool. So are there any disadvantages of taking this approach? Like, have you seen where the reports kind of fall short, I guess? Um, you know, I mean, sometimes you don't, sometimes you get people in the middle, right? Where they don't have anything super obvious and yet they are like, say for example, you have someone who's overweight and they don't really have anything obvious in their DNA that's, you know, one way or the other. She's, they're kind of like right in the middle um, in terms of their genetics for obesity and doesn't really point towards, you know, specific diet. You know, sometimes that can be a little frustrating for people because they want an answer, but that's not, there's not always an answer, right? So there's going to be, you know, maybe 20% of people where it's just kind of like, all right, well, we're going to do the standard things, you know, we'll approach this, you know, this, this weight loss like we would anything else, right? But we don't have like the DNA to necessarily guide us. So that certainly happens, but you know, that's the art of medicine, right? Is figuring out the, the best approach for people, even when you don't have the data in front of you to, to figure it out. I guess one other thing I will say is people get kind of nervous about, understanding their genetics because they're worried they're going to find something that, you know, is scary. Like for example, having an APOE4 and having higher risk of dementia. 
And the thing I try to remind people is that the, the sooner you have that data, the sooner you can start doing the things to help prevent that from actually happening. So, you know, while ignorance is, um, can be bliss, it is, is not going to solve the problem for you, right? So ignoring the problems that, that you might be facing down the road is, is not helpful. And actually doing the things that you can now around lifestyle to change and reduce that risk is that's, that's what we're all about. That's what we're trying to do here. Yeah. And that was really my next question is like, okay, so you have this report. Now you're understanding some things that are going on. What are some of the actions one should take? Like, how are we reducing the risk and improving outcomes once we have that data? totally depends on the specific risk that we're looking at, right? But we're focused mostly on lifestyle interventions. So we're traditional physicians. We can prescribe medications. We sometimes use pharmaceuticals, but without a doubt, we're looking towards lifestyle intervention to prevent disease rather than using medications. That's, that's our primary goal. So it, it's going to depend on the, the specific risk that we're talking about, but it's usually focused on the pillars of health, right? So we're talking about diet, you know, we're talking about exercise, we're talking about sleep, neurobehavioral health. Like those are all the things that are sort of, you know, no brainers, right? We use supplements when we need to, we use prescription medications when we need to, but ideally the majority of that stuff is, is gotten from diet. So understanding what do you need to be eating in order to get all of the, you know, omega threes that, that you need for, to reduce your dementia risk, right? You know, making sure that you're eating the appropriate amount of smash fish and avoiding the higher mercury fish, you know? So there's, there's obviously these, some detail around nutrition that we can really focus in on. And the same is true for exercise. You know, some people are going to respond better to high intensity interval training. Some people are going to respond better to strength or, you know, more standard zone to endurance, understanding what patients goal, goals are, but then also what their risk for disease are, and then planning an exercise plan for them is sort of what we're talking about here. So something that someone might be thinking, I know I was, I always try to think like the listener because so many of you give me such great questions and really just understanding the process of this and hearing you speak about omegas and those things that we all know we should be doing. Isn't it just basic food changes we need to be making? Like, I guess if somebody's listening and they're, they're hearing, okay, working out. Yep. I know I should do that. Omegas. Yep. I know I should do that. Lowering my saturated fat, probably a good idea. You know, I'm gaining weight on my ketogenic diet. I've been told that maybe saturated fat isn't good for me. Like where have you seen reporting in this way, fill in gaps that somebody maybe wouldn't think of? Is that, am I making sense? Yeah, totally. I mean, so if, if you're eating a, a regular or say just a, an uh, average diet, you know, so you're eating like a, no, I don't want to say average, <laughs> the average diet is terrible. Sorry. If you're eating a healthy North American diet, <laughs> let's say, let's, we'll put it that way. And you're moving, you're exercising and you're focusing on sleep and you're, you know, reducing screen time and you're like focusing on, you know, mindfulness and inner and social interaction, you know, chances are probably pretty good that you're, you're doing well, right? Like you're 80% of the way there, right? I think that is without a, without a doubt true. Now there are exceptions there because there's people who, you know, feel like, you know, the, the healthiest American diet or the healthiest North American diet is the, the carnivore diet. And that might be true for some people, but for a lot of people, that's not going to work. So it's when we start functioning in these extremes that we start having more challenges, right? So average healthy person comes to me, they're probably 80% of the way there. Is there opportunity for improvement with my my new changes? Hundred percent, yeah. So we can get them closer to that, you know, ninety five percent health or what or whatever, however you want to describe it, by looking at some of that, that that really you know minute detail. Now the people who are at the extremes, right, who are you know uh, fasting all the time or eating carnivore or eating vegan, those people they need a little bit more you know delicate evaluation because they're they're set setting themselves up for, for failure if they've got the wrong genetics for those things, right? Or if they've got the wrong epigenetics for those things. So those are the people that we need a little bit more evaluation of. So really for the super healthy people that are already coming in with a very, you know, 
reasonable, moderate approach to health, there's probably still 20% that they're leaving on the table that we can work on. For the people that are really in the extremes, those are the people that really need to get checked out and make sure that they're not doing something that's completely counterintuitive to what their genetics say for them. And that's the situation that I found myself in with, you know, for example, the high saturated fat ketogenic diet. You know, I, I felt, I didn't feel great, but I felt fine otherwise. I certainly didn't think that my CRP was five and that my you know, LDL cholesterol was 350. I didn't feel like that because you don't really know what that feels like. But that was certainly the case. And until I really tested it on myself and like I've done with multiple patients, they didn't realize either. Okay. That's such a great way to describe that hundred percent. Okay. So let's set up a scenario. Somebody comes in and they're told maybe in their reporting, I know that some of my reports in the past have said stuff about lowered ability to process carbohydrates or lowered ability to process caffeine or a lowered ability to convert vitamin A. Are these things that are actually happening in the body or is this just a potential of things that could happen? Great question. Um, both. <laughs> they, they certainly could be happening in the body. Some of the things you mentioned are fairly specific, like CYP1A2 is the caffeine metabolism enzyme that you just mentioned. And whenever a report says that you are probably, you're probably slower to metabolize caffeine, that's probably true because that enzyme is very well established. It's very well known. That specific SNP of that enzyme is very, very well described. And people who have that, they do process caffeine slower. Now, if you're super practiced at drinking caffeine, <laughs> for example, then you can actually improve your body's ability to process caffeine, right? This is just like, you know, anything else where you sort of build up a tolerance to something, right? A tolerance is nothing more than increasing the amount of enzymes that your body already produced because your body's used to upregulating those enzymes, right? So if you, you know, eat a lot of one particular thing and it takes a specific enzyme to digest that thing, your body's going to get real good at digesting that thing over time, right? So to some extent, the enzyme doesn't work as well, right? But you can, you know, sort of train your body to perform better. Now, when you look at the actual data, the data is not looking at, you know, people's experience or how much training they have prior to ingesting this compound, right? So the data itself is, is not going to tell you that information. But if you think about it from a physiologic standpoint, then you can, you can certainly affect your ability to, to manage these things. So in a lot of ways, both are true. The chances are that, you know, if you've got a lot of these enzymes, you're not going to perform as well with, you know, whatever, whatever stimulus is given, is given to the body. But there are ways around it by either increasing the amount of ingestion of that, of that product, or just recognizing that, you know, maybe I'm not going to do as well with caffeine. And the way we see, like specifically talking about caffeine, the way that we see that manifest in people is patients with slower caffeine metabolism enzymes often don't sleep as well. So, you know, if you drink a cup of coffee with a slow CYP1A2, you know, at 8 a.m., at 8 p.m., you may still have 50% of that cup of coffee in your system. It's still, you know, still working on your adenosine receptors and decreasing your sleep. So I find it less important what your caffeine enzyme says and more important, how are you sleeping? You having trouble sleeping? Oh, okay, you're having trouble sleeping. So let's think about what are some things that could potentially be affecting your sleep. And then, you know, you can start thinking about, well, there's obviously all the sleep hygiene stuff. We got to go through that. But then let's also look at caffeine. Oh, it looks like you're a slow caffeine metabolizer and you're drinking, when's your last cup of coffee? It's at noon. Okay, well, let's back that up. So how about let's not drink coffee until after 8 a.m. And if you want anything after that and drink decaf coffee, or maybe you've got you know, a CYP1A2 and a Adora A2, which is going to cause anxiety with caffeine. And you notice that whenever you try to fall asleep, you've got insomnia and you can't get your mind to slow down. Well, that could be from the Adora A2. So it's definitely nuanced. But if you think about it from a, what is the issue that we're trying to solve standpoint and then backtrack and then look at the DNA, that's when it becomes meaningful, right? Like if you're not having trouble with sleep, you know, you're, you drink coffee, you love coffee, doesn't cause any anxiety. Like, what are we even talking about it for? It doesn't matter what your CYP1A2 is. But when there's an issue that comes up or something that we're trying to optimize for, that's when this stuff can be really helpful. You remember about 10 years ago where everyone was using natural vitality calm to boost their magnesium levels until they up and changed their recipe and then nobody uses it? <laughs> yeah. So I started using magnesium citrate and oxide to get myself regular. We're talking about bowel movements here. And it worked until it just didn't anymore. I was starting to react to the magnesium. I couldn't take any form of magnesium. It constantly hurt my stomach. I knew that it was a little bit to do with the fillers because let me tell you, 
there are tons of supplement companies that put crazy stuff in their products. Let me tell you, it's just too much. And so I shied away from magnesium, not really caring about my actual magnesium level, but just wanting to figure out something that would help with my bowel movements. So I chatted with a mentor. I've been so blessed to have amazingly smart people in my life that feed into me in so many different ways. And she had suggested that I do a hair tissue mineral analysis. So I did this analysis, even though I thought that it would be absolutely stupid because I'd seen so many hair tissue mineral analysis over the years. And I thought that there was no way that it would actually provide data. Turns out it was fantastic to the point where I did a full course on hair tissue mineral analysis so I could start using it in my practice because it was just so eye-opening. And as I started to dig deeper into my absolute ridiculous magnesium deficiency, I started learning how uh, the mixture of different magnesiums are really good in order to fully develop magnesium in our body and have our stores be really, really good so we don't have any issues in the future so that you understand what magnesium is. It's an intracellular mineral and a key element in cellular metabolism. It's needed for both glycolysis and the citric acid cycle. So we're talking about energy here. It's needed for over 500 different enzyme reactions in the body. It regulates sugar metabolism. It's involved in energy production. Its highest concentration is found in the muscles, liver, heart, and pancreas. Cell membrane permeability is maintained by magnesium. It helps with the relaxation of muscle and reduces inflammation. It's the heart mineral. And sodium actually increases the burn rate of magnesium. And so if you have inflammation, it'll drive up sodium and decrease magnesium. Okay, so it's really important to have our magnesium on point. When it's low, we're going to have osteoarthritis, osteoporosis, depression, PMS, cardiovascular disease, noise sensitivity, adrenal insufficiency, hypothyroidism, anxiety, hyperactivity, tremors, excessive sweating, convulsions, epilepsy. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on. And so there's this relationship between calcium and magnesium. So we really need to understand that magnesium is such a key component to our overall health. And so I I personally was not prioritizing this myself. And so when the hair tissue mineral analysis came back as me being like severely deficient in magnesium, I started researching magnesium. And I'm really lucky because my clients come to me with all sorts of protocols that they've been on and things. And I ask questions and I really try to understand what they're doing, why they're doing it. And the key pattern that I noticed with magnesium being leveled off in people when I would test them is that they were taking magnesium breakthrough by bioptimizers. Now, I checked out the website and I was like, nah, I don't know. It looks kind of weird. I'm good. But when I started dealing with magnesium deficiency myself and seeing it firsthand, I was like, okay, I should probably just figure it out. So I started taking magnesium breakthrough by bioptimizers in August of 2022. I then tested my hair tissue mineral analysis three months later and I no longer had magnesium deficiency. This stuff is awesome. It's a blend of magnesium chelate, biglycinate, it's got some malate in there, some orotate, taurate, citrate, all blended together with a humic fulvic uh, blend. It has a little bit of manganese in there, a little bit of B6. You're actually gonna absorb this stuff. And a little tip for magnesium and how much you need on a daily basis it might blow your mind. You're gonna need five times your weight in milligrams. Okay, so let's say you're 150 pounds. Multiply that by five. That means you need 750 milligrams of magnesium a day. Yes, I said that right. So I'm a huge fan of Magnesium Breakthrough by Bioptimizers. Now you know everything about magnesium that you could possibly know. If you want to check out Bioptimizers, go to bioptimizers.com and use the coupon code KETODIET10 for 10% off your Magnesium Breakthrough and all their awesome supplements. I just love them so much. Again, that's buyoptimizers.com and using the coupon code KETODIET10. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And so 
I think what I'm hearing you say is that SNPs might not directly affect us. Like, let's say in the case of MTHFR, I cannot tell you how many clients tell me, I have MTHFR, I need to take specific methylated vitamins and all that stuff. Is this a sure thing that one needs to supplement with B12? Or I guess I'm just trying to understand at what point are we acting on these? What I'm hearing you say is when it's an issue, but in some cases, you don't know necessarily that it's an issue by just looking at genetic testing, correct? Correct. Yeah. You've got you've to identify the issue. So genetic testing can help with risk. And so there's some things that we can't test for with labs, right? So, you know, I can't, I can't test you for dementia risk with labs, right? So I sort of have to lean on APOE34 or APOE4 as a risk for dementia, right? So that, that's one case where genetics are going to direct care. But in most cases, like you mentioned with MTHFR, which by the way, I'm pretty sure like 95% of the population has at least one MTHFR SNP because there's not just one, there's multiple. In the case of MTHFR, you can definitely have an MTHFR SNF and, and not have any issues with methylation. And that's why it's important to check things like a homocysteine level or a folate level or a B12 level, which we check on all of our patients because those things are going to help direct care. The way that the genetics become helpful is that they help, they help us assess what is the appropriate way to treat this person in front of us who has poor methylation. So if I get your homocysteine level and it's elevated, that suggests to me that your methylation is poor, right? And now I need to do something about it. But there's a lot of different ways to treat methylation. I can give you B12. I can give you methylated folate. I can give you choline. I can give you TMG. These are all things that can potentially help methylation. We could even change your amino acid profile in your diet. But I'm not going to want to do all those things to you because you don't want to take four different supplements and chain your amino acids if those things aren't necessarily what you need. So the genetics help us tell, all right, is this somebody who's more likely to have a folate problem? Are they more likely to have a B12 problem? Could this be you know, related to choline? And that can help us determine what the appropriate approach is going to be rather than just you know throwing the kitchen sink at you, right? So it's a more precise approach to the process that we have in front of us. We know you've got a methylation problem because you're homocysteine. Now we're going to backtrack, look at your genetics and say, what is the most precise way to treat this that's going to be most likely successful and not require you to take six different things to try to treat it? Got it. Okay. So with the SNPs, is that something that is either turned on or turned off? And can you tell whether or not it's turned on or turned off? Like in the case of or whether or not it's expressing, like in the case of MTHFR, if you just see that in a genetic report, is it, I guess you don't know whether or not it's causing a problem unless you do the homocysteine or looking at your MCV, MCH, MCHC or folate or MMA to kind of determine what you're saying is, is there actually an issue occurring right now in this moment? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I would, I would suggest that, you know, so the genetics will give you an idea of, you know, what the reduction in, in function of the of the gene is so you can you know mthfr for example there's a few SNPs that you know decrease function by 50 percent. there's one that decreases by like 70 percent. so you can get an idea of like what's happening to the function but that doesn't tell you anything about the epigenetics which i brought up earlier and epigenetics are your cells cells ability to turn up or down genes right and that is on the horizon and super cool stuff and we can do that with a few genes right now but not with everything. So, you know, there's a few obesity genes we can look at and say, this person has these upregulated genes based on these epigenetics. So this might be an issue. But for example, for MTHFR, that's not currently available. So instead, we use labs. We use, you know, the data that we can obtain on our patient or other phenotypic data like biometrics, you know, so weight, sleep, HRV, all those things can be helpful for, for different aspects of, you know, what is the person, what's happening with the person in front of us. But for the most part, what you'll see is, is a large laboratory panel, which is, is something that we do on all of our patients to help get this information. Okay. And so I guess what's the difference between what we see in a DNA report outlining specific genetic single nucleotide polymorphisms and what we see in blood work outlining the actual cells activity needs in real time. I think what you're saying is that the DNA report will give us clues, but the blood work will give us actually indication of what's happening currently. Is that right? So the blood work will give you an, an idea of what's currently happening with the patient. The DNA will give you a better understanding of to why it's happening with the patient and then thus how to fix it. So if you know, you know, like for example, something's broken in my home 
you know, if I want to really, you know, figure out why could this thing be broken or why is this symptom happening in my home or better, let's talk about a boat. You said you're, you're a boat person. So, you know, something's going wrong with your boat, your boat engine, and you're not sure exactly why it's not working, but you know, it's not working. Right. So in order to fix it, you're going to have to pull out the blueprint of the engine. You're going to have to look at the engine and figure out, all right, I'm going to start to diagnose this problem based on this blueprint because all of these things should be functioning the way this blueprint shows. Right. And then that'll actually give you some information that you can then use to figure out how to fix the engine. I just came up with that metaphor out of nowhere. I'm not sure if it even works, <laughs> but the, the general idea is that there's a problem in order to fix it. You have to understand why it's happening in order to fi- fix it precisely and accurately. You're going to have to come up with a, with a way that is appropriate for the problem in front of you. And that's where the blueprint and or the DNA comes into work. Does that make sense? Yes, completely. It makes sense. So let's run through an example so we can try to understand this in a practical way. I love the boat analogy. Thanks for that. Love boats. Um, Let's say a genetic report may say that somebody processes vitamin C fine. Like according to their genetics, they should be able to process vitamin C and all is good. But let's say due to, I don't know, heavy metal toxicity, we know that heavy metals can blow through vitamin C so quickly. So this person is chronically low in vitamin C. Maybe we see that in their blood work. Vitamin C pattern, I think, is low ferritin, high red blood cells, low albumin, low bilirubin. Those four markers, in addition to, I think, like two others, can point to a vitamin C need. But if we go to the genetic report, it says processing vitamin C fine. So how do we rectify this? Is Is it just in some cases, because of our environment, we have certain things, but genetically, that blueprint says we should be able to handle that fine? Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, in that particular case that you just outlined, I mean, to be honest with you, genetics wouldn't be that helpful. I mean, you, you know, if you're, if your your blueprint says that you, you're going to utilize vitamin C appropriately without any issues, and yet your vitamin C levels are low, or at least there's this, you know, this evidence that vitamin C may be low and there's a good argument as to why with heavy metal toxicity, then yeah, I don't think genetics is really helping me in that case. You know, it might help me a little bit when I'm looking at, all right, now I'm going to treat this heavy metal toxicity and trying to determine like, you know, how much glutathione do they need to be on? You know, should I be supplementing with vitamin E as well? Then, then genetics can be helpful when I'm starting to get into the nitty gritty of how to do it. But in terms of like the actual why, in that case, you're making that diagnosis based on laboratory testing, not on genetics. Okay. Got it. Okay. I guess one thing, you know, we probably should have started with sooner, but I really like to get into it is a lot of concerns around sending our samples into labs and where that information goes. I've talked with so many people that regret sending in their DNA and knowing that it's just out there and they can't get it back. What are your thoughts on that? I think it sucks. (laughs) (laughs) That's my thoughts on it. I think that it's your data and you should own your data. So, you know, the fact that these companies can just keep your data and sell it to whoever they want to is ridiculous. I, you know, we, we don't do that. Our, you know, every, all of our stuff is HIPAA compliant, which I don't know if you guys have HIPAA in, in Canada or not, but it's, you know, pretty high security stakes and the, the data is not sold. Like we, we use that data to provide people healthcare and then they can delete it at any point if they want to, or, you know, whatever. And I think that's how it should be. And I don't think that selling data is very, a very cool thing. And genetics also is, I mean, your genetic code is unique to you. So, you know, people might call it de-identified, but it can never truly be de-identified, right? Might not, the file might not have your name on it, but, you know, if, obviously that's how we you know, <laughs> convict people of murder. So it's, it's truly identifiable. So I think just if you are going to play in this realm, which I think you should, if you, if, you know, if you can get over the, the concerns around, uh, around privacy, just make sure you work with a company that's like honest and upfront about what they do with your DNA and don't just go sending it to anybody. Yeah, I, I definitely sent it to anyone and didn't realize what I was doing until much later. So, you know, we live and we learn. Um, yep, yep. I the same nothing. thing. I didn't, I didn't even. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. So wild health, is it proper to understand that not only do you guys do the genetic piece, but also other labs and what other labs are you doing and, and how, what are the other components involved? Yeah. So several things involved. We definitely do labs on every patient. So we're, like I mentioned in the podcast, genetics are almost useless by themselves. So while we do find benefit in them, you know, we're doing more than just looking at people's genetics. I mean, we're doing whole person healthcare. So a laboratory panel is is sent on everybody to get them started. It's a pretty large laboratory panel. It includes everything from, you know, vitamins, minerals, micronutrients, hormones, uh, inflammatory markers, lipids, you know, all, all those things. 
so that that's run through uh, one of a one of a couple of our labs that we have that can do those entire panels. So we combine that with the genetics, and then a pretty big, you know, detail life focused questionnaire that people fill out for us online. And then we built a program that kind of takes all of that data, meshes it together and develops um, a, a health report for a patient. It's about 50, 60 pages long, focused on diet, exercise, sleep, uh, neurobehavioral, longevity, chronic disease, all those things are like broken out into each one of the topics. And then patients meet with a health coach. They go through sort of like a day, day in the life of, uh, get an idea of how people are really living their life. And then once all of that data comes back, you meet with the doc and the health coach together and kind of go over everything and, and, and develop out a plan. And then from there, it kind of depends on the patient. It's, you know, it's iterative in the sense that like, we're going to come up with things for you to try or uh, recommendations for how you could improve your health. And then we're going to want to retest and make sure you're getting better. So, you know, some indeterminate amount of time after your, after your initial visit, you're going to want to repeat labs and, you know, come back and see us again. Uh, and that depends on the, the issue the patient's facing. If it's something super urgent, then the labs are going to be sooner. If things look generally pretty well, then we'll, we can wait longer. And we let the patients help decide those things. Like I mentioned earlier, I got frustrated when, you know, I could only go every like three months to see my doctor to repeat my labs. Like recognize that some people want to make change more quickly. And in that case, sure, let's repeat labs more quickly and, and see how things are going. So all those things are involved. We often add on other stuff. So, you know, heavy metal toxicity issues, hormones with like, you know, Dutch testing or urine, urine urinary hormone testing, microbiome is pretty common one that we add on. Um, there's a, a slew of other things that we're doing on our patients, but everybody gets DNA in labs because um, we feel like that's the, the groundwork that we have to work off of. Completely. I go to get my blood work. Oh my goodness. So much that the phlebotomist knows me. He knows everything. We don't even need to speak. He is such a rock star. He's by far like the best human. And yeah, just because there are some people that like to go quick, you know, I have some clients that love going in once a month for blood work and they can't wait to see if things shifted. Whereas other clients, I have to beg and plead them. It's like, it's time. We need to check on your thyroid. We cannot wait another month. Um, so really just depends on the person. I agree with you. So in the reporting and such, would things like vitamin A or vitamin B be recommended strictly because of genetics or would it not? I guess where I'm going with this is so many companies now you can upload your raw data and they'll tell you all the supplements you need to take because of your genetics. And I have worked with a couple clients where this has massively ruined their health and they're on way too many supplements, way too many nutrients, totally unnecessary. What stance do you take on all of that? Yeah, I think that's ridiculous. The idea that you should just look at what you can make any decision off of just looking at one thing is doesn't make any sense to me. So, you know, I, I never have people start supplements just on genomics alone. Like I might, you know, you've got a couple of BCMO SNPs. I might tell you to eat more carrots, but I'm not going to tell you to go start taking vitamin A. Like for one thing, vitamin A is a fat soluble vitamin, which means you can have vitamin A toxicity. So, you know, taking that based on your genetics is ridiculous without even taking into account what your current vitamin A levels are or how much you're eating in your diet. So, you know, for the most part, we're, we're not checking for every micronutrient on our labs. So there are some where we look at genetics first and then determine if that's something that we want to check on. Like vitamin A is one of them, for example. Not vitamin A deficiency, not that common, even despite the, the how common the, the gene uh, malformation is for vitamin A deficiency. So that's one that we'll look at the genetics first. And then if there's a concern or if there's another clinical reason for us to be concerned about vitamin A, then maybe we'll send an expanded micronutrient panel on the patient. But for the most part, we're not recommending supplements based on genetics alone. And I think that that's a good practice to take in general for people is to, you know, combine it with lab work, especially if it's something easily measurable like a vitamin or a micronutrient. I really hope you're enjoying today's episode. I'd love to see where you're listening from. You can snap a pic and tag me at Leanne Vogel or leave a review for the show on your favorite podcast player. It helps me out tremendously. Okay, back to the good stuff. Yeah, completely. I couldn't agree with you more. Ah, it drives me nuts. I saw a really fun pattern in blood work the other day and I was chatting with a mentor and a huge light bulb went off. We were talking about B12 earlier in our conversation and I had a client probably about a year and a half ago with a really elevated B12 and we could not figure out why this thing was elevated. And it just, she was displaying signs of deficiency. We're like, what's going on? It turns out she had a lithium deficiency 
deficiency and lithium is needed for B12 or lithium is needed for B12 uptake. And once we started on a little bit of lithium, not only did she start detoxing because we need lithium for detox, but her B12 started coming down. And I just, you know, all those little things we think, oh yeah, yeah, I'll just take a multivitamin. I'll just take a B12. It's not a big deal. But if we don't need these things, they can actually be detrimental to our health. And she was having a lot of detoxification issues because she wasn't on the proper nutrients. And so I take that stuff very seriously. They're antagonists all through our body when it comes to our minerals and vitamins, and they can antagonize each other. So getting on the right supplements is so, so key. Would you agree with that? 100%. Yeah. And I'm, I'm pretty quick to pull the trigger on a micronutrient panel on patients, especially when there's just something unexplained, something doesn't make sense. Like that's a great time to take a closer look at most of the micronutrients and even an amino acid profile, which I like adding on to that as well, because you'll catch stuff that otherwise would have been really challenging to pick up on. Like just the case that you just mentioned with the B12 and the lithium, like that's, that's not an easy pickup, right? Like that's, that's a challenge to think like, oh, B12's high. I should check a lithium level. Not many, not many docs or, or nutritionists are going to, are going to make that jump. So, you know, whenever things don't start adding up like that, I'm pretty quick to get a expanded micronutrient panel. And you'd be surprised how often you find stuff on those. Yeah. So cool. I, I really, I use a micronutrient panel also and a hair tissue mil- mineral analysis from TEI. And I just, I'm in love with those two things. So I couldn't agree with you more. Now, since we're talking about supplementation, if one were to follow your program, what is the brand of supplements or what types of supplements are you recommending? So we don't have a brand. We don't make big money off supplements uh, with our patients, which is a little unique with a lot of a lot of groups in this space. Um, but we feel pretty strongly that we don't want to have any conflicts of interest there. So while we do have a few companies that we work with that like offer a discount to our patients, we don't actually see any of that discount, which is really common in affiliate marketing. So. I'm not really, I don't think I'll really say one just because, you know, maybe I will. <laughs> like there's a few that I, there's a few that we trust and use those more regularly in our patients. Like for example, Thorn is one of them. Feel pretty good about the quality of their supplements, for example, and use that with quite a few of our patients. And there's a, there's a handful of others that we, that we use on a fairly, fairly regular basis, but we try to stick with, to some consistency with the supplements that we do use so that, um, we're more comfortable with uh, the response that we should expect from the patients. Uh, so within, even within our doctor network, all the f- different physicians that work with us, we try to use the same supplements for the same things. And each one of those has been vetted independently. Yeah, completely. It's so important to vet those and feel good about the supplements you're recommending. I'm, I'm surprised by Thorne though. I know that they were, they were forcing their employees to vaccinate or be fired. Have you kind of shifted? Like what are kind of your thoughts about aligning with that? I know that myself, personally with my practice, I cut all thorn supplements out of my practice when, you know, if they're a health brand and they're forcing their employees to vaccinate, what has been your approach to that over the last year? Uh, I mean, we, we don't have any concerns over that necessarily in terms of having their employees vaccinated. I feel like that's their decision. They're their own independent company and I'm not going to, I'm not going to play politics with them. I'm mostly concerned about the quality of their supplements and whether my patients are going to improve from them or not. So try to keep it, uh, apolitical as much as possible. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Do you feel like there's anything that I missed in our conversation around, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not as well versed as you at all about all of this and just maybe a piece or of the puzzle that maybe you feel like I missed in my questions to really help people understand the value of this and, and where, where you're coming from? I think you did a great job. I mean, you've got, uh, you've got some clear skepticism about it, which I actually love. Um, I think like skepticism is, is really helpful, especially in today's world of, of healthcare, because there's so many different options out there and so many people that are willing to tell you, you know, exactly what the absolute right thing is for you, you know, even without knowing you, that's really, you know, a lot of what has gotten us motivated to get into this space is uh, trying to work with clarity with our patients and be open and not paternalistic in the delivery of care so that it's more of a conversation 
and trying to inform and educate our patients rather than just give them the pill or give them the treatment that we think they need. Because we really want it to be an informed discussion between the provider and the patient to really understand like what are the risks and benefits of all these things. Because one thing I think medicine and anybody trying to sell you healthcare is is bad about doing is recognizing that there's risk to any intervention, even a supplement, like you were mentioning earlier, like even supplements have risks, uh, you know, some of them more than others, but any other treatment is going to have risks as well. So really understanding the, uh, the opportunities we have for health, but also the risk that enacting some of those opportunities might cause is really important. So we've tried to cr- sort of create this collegial relationship with our patients. And I hope that's come through in, in this in this conversation. Yeah, completely. I think it definitely has. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'll include uh, links and things in your intro and all those pieces so that people know where to reach out to you. And I just, I, I really, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your brilliance and teaching us all about this. Thank you so much. Totally. Yeah. And before I forget, we created a discount code for your listeners. If I can tell them what that is, that'd be cool. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. So it's uh, key diet 20 all caps k-e-t-o-d-i-e-t 20 if they want to get 20 percent off on anything that we do so okay. hopefully that helps awesome thank you very much for putting that together and uh thanks again for coming on thanks for having me this has been great so i hope you enjoyed today's episode of the keto diet podcast thanks again to dr mike mallon for being on the show i will see you here next tuesday for another episode of the keto diet podcast okay see you then bye Thanks for listening to the Keto Diet Podcast. Join us again in a couple of days to discover more Keto for Women secrets for your fat-fueled life. Music for the Keto Diet Podcast provided by Yechi. Follow Jacob on Instagram at Yechi underscore official and on Spotify as Yechi. That's Y-E-C-H-I. The Keto Diet Podcast, including show notes and links, provides information in respect to healthy living, recipes, nutrition, and diet, and is intended for informational purposes only. The information provided is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment, nor is it to be construed as such. We cannot guarantee that the information provided on the Keto Diet Podcast reflects the most up-to-date medical research. Information is provided without any representations or warranties of any kind. Please consult a qualified physician for medical advice and always seek the advice of a qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding your health and nutrition program.